Take your copy of Matthew and turn to Matthew 28. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses, fear and joy. You have been there. You know how the disciples felt. Jesus was gone. The echoes of the pilgrims, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those shouts of messianic acclamation were still ringing in the disciples' ears. Just a week earlier, Jesus was on the top of a colt. The pilgrims were praising and the stones were singing, but now all they heard was a deafening sound of silence. Silence that accompanies the emptiness of death. And they had left everything to follow Jesus, their jobs, their families, their futures. They had created their own image of Jesus as Messiah with him sitting on a throne and they sitting to the right and to the left hand of the throne as he took over. Jerusalem. But now, what do you do? You cannot have a kingdom without a king. You cannot have a Jewish kingdom without a Christ. And real messiahs don't hang on trees. Moses told us that is for those who are cursed. After a funeral, it's hard to know what to do, how to move on. You've buried the body, but how do you bury your despair? How do you bury that hollow emptiness in the pit of your stomach? And now the disciples are fearful for their own lives. Now they're hiding afraid lest they themselves be next when it comes to crucifixion. Why, they even denied that they knew him. We saw on Good Friday that Matthew tells us every one of them left him and fled. In fact, John's gospel tells us that it, they did not understand that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. And so each of the disciples, they had disbanded and each had gone to his own home. Death. There is no pain like the pain of standing by a graveside. I stood there yesterday knowing that it's over. Your wife your husband, your father, your mother, God forbid, your son or your daughter, dead. At those times, we realize how dreadful the enemy of death really is. How final that word seems when you attach that word to someone that you love. How fear of death can keep us up at night. And how its sting seems all-powerful at the moment. Why, if the story of Jesus had ended with a sealed tomb, with death on the cross, there would be absolutely no Christianity, no church, no hope, no light, no life, no sense. 
that we could ever make of suffering. The body was laid in a new tomb, and the stone was sealed and set securely in place. The two Marys, Mary of Magdala, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, well, they had watched as the men had buried the body in haste. Sabbath was quickly approaching, and the Jewish authorities had warned Pilate that this rabbi, this deceiver, had earlier claimed that three days following his death, he would rise again. His grave, therefore, was secured and sealed, guards put in place, lest the disciples of this deceiver steal the body and claim a resurrection, making matters worse for the Jewish authorities than they were in the beginning. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. An earthquake and an angel the National Earthquake Information Center, the World Data Center for Seismology, declares that no scientist can presently predict when a future earthquake will occur. And in fact, they say, we'll probably never, ever be able to predict the occurrence of future earthquakes. While that's true in most cases, the earthquakes that happened during the week of our Christ's passion had long been predicted by the prophets of old, Isaiah and Ezekiel. The prophets knew about this earthquake. Matthew begins this last chapter, now after the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath officially began at sundown on Friday and ended at sundown on Saturday. So the ladies had to wait to early the rising of the sun on Sunday to go to the tomb. Mark adds to the narrative by explaining the women wanted to return to the tomb to appropriately finish the anointing of the body of Jesus. The men had done it in such haste because on the Sabbath no such work could be done. The women wanted to do it right. So they were coming back early that morning wondering who was going to roll the stone away. The resurrection, therefore, did not happen on holy time. It happened the day after. Perhaps the resurrection was too grand for old time. So powerful and so central was the resurrection of Jesus that the early church moved the day of sacred celebration a day forward to the day of the resurrection, to this day, to Sunday, rather than observing the traditional Sabbath. The women in Matthew's account making their way to the tomb 
where Mary of Magdalene, and Magdala is a little city on the Sea of Galilee, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now, we know one of these ladies well. We know Mary of Magdala. And the record of all four Gospels, this one woman was a disciple who stood immovably by Jesus even past his death. Matthew 27, she is there when Jesus dies. And Matthew 27, she is there when Jesus is buried. And now in Matthew 28, she is there at the earliest opportunity to see him again, to anoint his body. For Jesus had delivered her from seven demons, and she therefore would not now desert him. The disciples have fled to their own homes, but Mary was there for every event of the Passion. In verse 2, a, a severe earthquake. While we experience an enormous resurrection earthquake in this passage, there is no actual description. There is no eyewitness of the resurrection itself. Nowhere in the New Testament does anyone claim to have actually seen the resurrection. The evangelists are quite candid about that. Perhaps they did not want to touch the ark. Some things are too sacred to touch, and some things likewise are too sacred to see. We know of the resurrection not because of eyewitnesses to the event itself, but rather because of the effects to follow. And God, God who remains silent on Good Friday... Even as Jesus called out to him, why, why, oh God? God, who remains silent on Good Friday, now is giving the last word to the resurrection. What God does in the, the resurrection is more than just another extraordinary miracle. No, what God does in the resurrection is something that is entirely new. It is the beginning of a, a whole new world, a kind of world where the dead actually can be called back to life. It is cosmically something new, a new creation. This earthquake, you remember there had been an earthquake earlier in the chapter before during the crucifixion. We were told that it grew dark and the earth shook, and the rocks were split asunder. On both occasions, these seismic seizures speak of the cosmic significance of events concerning Jesus. Even creation was convulsing, both at the cross of our Christ and His glorious and victorious resurrection. The earth itself cannot take what is happening to its Creator, and the earth shakes. The second earthquake we see in this chapter in verse 2 is associated with an angel, an angel that descends from heaven. 
And having rolled away the stone, sat upon it. Have you ever noticed in Matthew's gospel when the angels are around Jesus? In Matthew's gospel, there's angels around Jesus at his birth. Then angels reappear in Matthew's gospel during his temptation. Angels in this gospel, they reappear at Gethsemane during that prayer of agony where he's asking God to let this cup pass from him. But do you realize that when he's on the cross, that's the end of the life of our Lord where there is no angel? Just as God had to turn away and not look at his son with all the sin, even so the angels are not present during the crucifixion. But now here at the resurrection, the angels have returned. And now we have the last angel of Matthew's gospel. The last angel of the gospel is here. Descended from heaven, having sat on the stone. The angel's appearance, look at verse 3, is like lightning. His garments is as white as snow. The lightning look of the angel was another indication that the cosmos itself had changed. Jesus had described his ultimate arrival in Matthew 24. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, even so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For Matthew, I think, in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the beginning of his return. We have in the resurrection of Jesus the lightning-like beginning of the end. Look at verse 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Shook for fear. Matthew sees the irony. The man who's inside is supposed to be dead, but he's alive. The men outside are supposed to be alive, but they're dead-like. But Matthew wants you to realize this is not your ordinary story. Not everyone who seems alive really is alive. And praise be to God, not everyone who seems to be dead is dead any longer. Five through seven, look at the empty tomb. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Do not be afraid. The message of the angel to the ladies The you, the pronoun is emphatic in the Greek text. I don't want you too to be afraid like the guards were, the angel saying. Have you ever realized 
that the word of the angel at the end of the story, the resurrection of Jesus, is the same word of the angel at the beginning of the story, at the birth of Jesus. The book ends of the gospel. We begin the story of Jesus with fear not, and we end the story of Jesus, same message, fear not. You remember Mary, when Gabriel visits her in Luke chapter 1, Mary is afraid, and Gabriel says to her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with men. And then think just one chapter over in Luke chapter 2. The shepherds are there on the hillside. They're watching their flocks by night, and there's a bright light, and they are terribly afraid. And the angel of acclamation says to the shepherds, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I want you to remember those words. You're going to see them again in a moment. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Don't be afraid, great joy. Fear not, great joy. Yes, the story of Jesus begins the same words with which it ends. Fear not. Both the birth of Christ and the resurrection of the Messiah represent the ultimate hope for humanity. That Christ has come and Christ has been crucified and now been resurrected for both the glory of God and the hope of humanity. Now I want you to notice what he says about Jesus. He has been crucified Don't think for a moment in any way that the crucifixion of of Christ is nullified by his resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I preach Christ crucified. He has been crucified. It is a passive, imperfect participle, meaning his crucifixion continues in the sense that what has been accomplished in the crucifixion still is. We still preach Christ crucified. He is the one who has been crucified. The resurrection doesn't end the crucifixion, but rather it is the culmination of the crucifixion itself. They are one and the same event, Christ crucified and Christ raised. Verse 6, he is not here. When the angel says he is not here, he is honoring the bodily resurrection. If Jesus had only been spiritually raised, the angel could have said, he's not here, now he's everywhere. He doesn't say that. He is not here. He's not present here, but he's going ahead to Galilee, meaning in his resurrected body, he still had a local actual presence. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus means that God loves our whole person, both our body and our spirit. Our bodies are important to him. It is a empty tomb. He has risen. In fact, it says in passive tense, he was raised. Scripture nowhere says that Jesus raised himself. It is an act of God the Father. He has been raised by the Father, just as he said. Now, Jesus constantly told the disciples he was going to rise again. In Matthew 12, I will rise again. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 
20 and Matthew 26, over and over again throughout the pages of this gospel, I will die and I will rise. But the disciples just didn't get it. The women are invited. Come and see. In fact, as I looked at Matthew 28 this time, there are a lot of visual verbals. The text doesn't want us to close our eyes and imagine a resurrection. It says, come on in close and see. Let's look at these. Look at verse 1. The women, they're going to look at the verse, to look at the grave. That's the first one. And number 2 in verse 2, behold or look. A severe earthquake had occurred. And look at verse 5. The women are looking for the body of Jesus, the one who's been crucified. And in verse 6, the angel says, come and see. I invite you in. Don't take my word for it. Come and see. In verse 7, the disciples are told, look. He's going into Galilee. And look at verse 7, and you will see him. And finally, in verse 9, another behold or look, Jesus met them. From beginning to end, it is a call to come and investigate. Come and see the place where he is lying. The angel did not say, just take my word for it. The angel invites inquiry and curiosity. Come and see for yourself. The tomb is empty. Come and see. Look. Though extraordinary in every way, the resurrection does not cause us to suspend our cognitive faculties. On the contrary, we follow the evidence to the conclusion He was crucified, placed in a tomb, and eyewitnesses have seen him. Come and see, he's alive. Now go and tell the disciples. Have you ever realized that women were the first preachers of the gospel? God always works like that. A woman's testimony in a Jewish court in the first century wasn't even allowed. It wasn't considered trustworthy God always uses those that we think are weak to confound those we think are powerful. Why, if Matthew had been making up the message, he would have chosen men to be the first preachers of the gospel. But it's the two Marys who are the first to say, to tell the disciples, he is alive. Women are commanded to go and tell the eleven Jesus had told them he would meet them in Galilee. In Matthew 26, he says, A shepherd will be struck down. The sheep will flee. After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Look at verse 8. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Now, how can you have both fear and great joy? That's an odd combination. One scholar recalls teaching a pastor's conference, and he pointed out this passage in verse 8 of Matthew 28 and said, how can you have both fear and great joy? Very quickly, a a young pastor raised his hand, a pastor by the name of Doug Milam, and said, well, fear and great joy can coexist. I know I just got married. (laughs) Fear and great joy. Found side by side that first Easter. 
that first Easter, the feelings were mixed. Fear and great joy. Odd. 2,000 years later, I'm preaching to pews, and our hearts and our minds are filled like the first Easter with both fear and great joy. We wake up fearful. We go to bed anxious. We've lost the very rhythm of our lives. The people we see, the places we go, the sights and sounds that fill our senses with sameness and security and serenity have vanished with the virus. Isolated, worshiping by airwaves, schools closed and shops shuttered. The pandemic has left our once predictable lives in an unpredictable panic. But verse 9 and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. That's a common word for greeting. This is the morning that God says hi. Good morning, Jesus says. Hi. Can you imagine that greeting? The women grabbed the feet of Jesus they do not want to let him go, the Lord they've been looking for. And then Jesus' first words uttered by the resurrected Christ, fear not. You see, Jesus will not let both fear and great joy. The message of Luke, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The angel tells them, fear not, but they walk away with fear and great joy. And they turn around and Jesus says, hi. Uh-uh. Just great joy. Fear not. I say to you, no fear. Just on this Easter, only great joy. The message of the living Lord is great joy. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. And when he calls them brothers, he means he has forgiven him. The ones that fled, the ones that deserted him, he had forgiven them. The ones that had denied him. Go and tell my brothers. The women approached the tomb disappointed, but devoted to the memory of their Lord. Though expecting to find a crucified corpse, they encountered a resurrected Christ. The earth quakes, the soldiers shake, the angel announces the bodily resurrection, and the first words of the resurrected Lord to them then and to us today. Fear not, for I have called you, brother. I invite you to the hope of the empty tomb. We don't have to be afraid. Easter means that even should the worst come, should death come our way, we will follow in his resurrection. 
do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Let us pray. Oh God, just like those disciples on that first morning need to be told, we don't have to be afraid. Thank you for that message today to us. No fear, only joy, great joy in the empty tomb of our Jesus. Amen.